confronted with your own appearance. self at different ages. Yeah. You know, so most people go according to photographs, whereas I just suddenly I pop up on the telly and something being repeated and think, oh, Jesus, look at me oh, there. Yeah. It's always difficult, isn't it, when people say, oh, well, that's good, tell that story again. You never, ever tell it as well. No, absolutely. Um, I'm recording now, and uh, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I've certainly found that. I'm telling all my stories as they come up, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. But I often think, damn it, I didn't do that as well as I could have done. But that's part of the, the joy of it as well, catching moments. Yeah, you know? the looseness of it. Absolutely. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Michael Fenton Stevens. Hello. Hello. Hello, Dave. And How me, are you? You haven't I, been in my house for years. I know. Oh, like I was saying to you just off mic. You're a boy. Over ten years. Oh yeah, very much a boy. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I recently went to Mandy and I, my wife and I, we drove to Oxford and we went into town and we spent three years there as students. And when you're a student, you feel as if you're a man yeah god yeah and rightly out there doing the things you ought to be doing yeah. and being given the freedom you deserve and i walked around the town and, and all i saw were children <laughs> i know it's just bizarre i have this experience i mean that's even now. even for you that must yeah be and and, and yeah i mean 10 years on absolutely well the thing is i mean it's over 10 years because when I was last in this house, I was a single man. Yeah. Shortly afterwards, I stopped being a single man and haven't been a single man since. Since, no. And me and my girlfriend, Jen, are always talking about the fact that when we got together, we were children. Yeah. You know, and we're lucky. My wife As and we've matured, same. we fit. Yeah. We're in the same situation. I think you mature together, I think. And also, people affect you. If you're mm. with someone, it, it affects how you mature. Yeah. I mean, definitely in my case. I mean, I was very immature when I met my wife. I mean, incredibly immature. I had a very sort of sheltered upbringing, I think, as far as most things were concerned. You know, and I was brought up a Catholic, so I obviously had a great fear of sex. Yeah, <laughs> God. Know? And uh, just, just, just everything. I was frightened of lots of things. I think maybe the reason that I went into performing was is a lot of people do this, I think, in performing, is that you'd go into it to sort of to cover up what you see as your as your deficiencies. Yeah, and no, I've heard that. So you go in, you become someone else, and that allows you to, to look either confident or cool or relaxed or attractive, all those things you don't feel. Mm. And so you perform it, you know. And the, the difficulty is avoiding doing that in life. In actually admitting who you are and sort of going, well, actually, look at just me, I'm just like this. Yeah, that yeah. is, that's, I mean, that's, in a way, that's kind of part of why I'm doing this project is to kind of explore, like, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to sort of show who I am rather through than, conversation. yeah, through conversation rather than just uh, hiding behind, where did you in meet my her? case, writing or performance. Where, Sorry. where did you meet her? Meet Jen. Yeah. At Lancaster. Oh, she, right. in fact, was in a creative writing class with your daughter, Amy, uh, in the first year. How funny. How funny, yeah. <laughs> Which brings us nicely onto, in fact, I was going to say when I, when I introduced you that I printed out, which is a strange thing to do, um, <laughs> your Wikipedia entry. Oh my God. Because I just think oh, it's... Oh, go away, that's a telephone. That's a, yeah. That's, one of the things of the a, show is that life kind of interrupts, which yes. is nice. If it's my agent, you're in trouble. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's probably not. Actually, it's probably that the very daughter we're talking about. It may be. I've, I've been I've been contacting her to see if she could meet she up today. She might well come over so today. I'm not I, sure. think, yeah. I think it's a weird thing to do and an interesting thing to do because Wikipedia is is kind of 
often wrong. I think some of it's wrong. Uh, yeah. But one of the things it told me is that your surname is often erroneously hyphenated. It is, uh-huh. often, yeah. People there assume it's a, it's a hyphenated name. Whereas, in fact, the Fenton comes from my wife. My wife, is her surname is Fenton, mm-hmm. and my surname is Stevens. When I joined Equity, you couldn't have a name that was already used by... You still can't have a name that's used by another actor. So, uh, so anybody thinking of being an actor, Laurence Olivier is available, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and John Gilgood. Great, yeah, just turn up for an audition and say, yes, I'm John Gilgood. So I had to put change my name, and I tried a couple, actually. Actually, for a while, named myself after my father, so I became Michael Harry. My father's name was Harry. But for about until I thought, oh, I can't bear that. Then I just put the Fenton in the middle, and they, they accepted that. But I didn't hyphenate, because I didn't want my surname to be Fenton Stevens. I thought, oh, it would still be Stevens. But in fact, you know, everyone knows you as Everyone Fenton knows me as Fenton Stevens, so I should have hyphenated it would have made it easier. You know, but there we are. <laughs> so, Wikipedia and all these things, all those things are bizarre because every now and again somebody will email me and say, Have you seen what people have written about you on this? And it just, you can't predict what they're going to write. It seems it's, to me they've missed a lot out. There are a lot of things I've seen you in uh, because you're, you're quite a. You're in a, you're a strange position, I think, where people will probably recognise you frequently. Is, they do, that yeah. Happen? They but, do, but they have but no they won't idea. know who you are. In fact, the question I get asked most is, are you famous? <laughs> Which is sort of self-defeating, isn't it, as a question? Yeah, that, that, yeah, if, if you need to ask, then I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I mean, it's quite fun, though, as someone who's sort of known you personally, sort of yeah. seeing you pop up on TV. It's yeah, that's fun. what I do. Or that's what I've done for 35 years or something, just pop up on TV. <laughs> Lots of those sort of things. Uh, the first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? Uh, I know you through my daughter. Yeah. I know you through Hannah, my daughter who went to university with you. And, right. uh, and in fact, I think I've probably met you first at Lancaster. Probably. I came up to Lancaster to see one of the productions. Was I think. It? it was the one that you did all around the different venues. Seeing Double. That's that, right. that, yeah, that was yeah, a... Yeah, my first play that I sort of produced, yeah, that was that was a, a lucky show as well. I mean, it, it was, was great. Show. It, I really liked it. It was great. I know, uh, but it was lucky. Just the uh, events just all matched up and lined up, you know, perfectly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, with it being a campus university, so we could have a bar crawl. Yeah, yeah. And the snow. Do you remember the it snow? Was, uh, it was brilliant. And uh, the snow was such a lucky moment. I mean, that that really reminded me, or kind of put into my mind this idea that there will always, you know, you can never control those magic moments. They sort of no. happen without you. you yeah. Know, as, as you, you, yeah. You can perform something. absolutely the joy of live performing, mm. isn't it? That, you know, I mean, in, in, in my work, in television and film, all those sort of things, uh, you know, you, something magic can happen and they can then pick that moment and then show yeah. it to people. But generally, what happens is they sort of smooth them out. <laughs> But as in fact on stage, or in front of just in front of a live audience, you can't smooth them out. You have to go with them. Yeah, um, that was what makes it exciting. That's well, why people say, you know, how can you do a play for nine months or a year? And you say, well, it's never the same. Every time you do it, it's completely different. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, I've I haven't done as many performances since then as I would have liked to have done. But every time I've done it, that's been my experience. Yeah, every, you remember each one of them. Different. They're individual, yeah. absolutely individual. So it's not like just repeating a thing you are repeating words and you're often repeating actions and quite often you're, you're repeating a performance you've done before but you're not necessarily the whole thing isn't a repetition yeah it, I mean, it always feels different you get to the end the audience is different reactions you get are always slightly different so well that was the great thing about that play as well because they were happening in bars people didn't know if it was real or, or yeah, not yeah. and there were really drunk people and there were people pretending to be drunk kind of mixing yeah and the snow was the snow i mean because if you remember there was a kind of 
a bit where two people, in fact, your daughter yeah. and uh, another person abducted the two main characters. Yeah, yeah. And because of the snow, you could hear this crunch coming to... Like, the audience could see these characters crunching yeah, closer yeah, and closer. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And that was, oh, I mean, I couldn't have written that. No. But, it, but it was, you know, yeah. perfect. But that's how we met. That was, that that was, was. how we met, you know, several times after And, and the last time I was in your this house, yeah. that was just, I mean, I think... Because that was, I mean, I was remembering it coming to Tunbridge Wells. I've never been in Tunbridge Wells in the, in the, <laughs> when it's not been raining. Yeah. But I was just sort of, you know, flashing back to all those years ago because the last time I was in this house was a sort of really, I, I don't know, it was a wild time. For we me. did have, we had a, it was a great time. We had a good evening, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, we did, you yeah. did uh, the, the sort of family quiz show thing. That's what we, that's what we tend to do. It was great. We do the intro game, yeah, basically yeah. just play, play music and, uh, yeah, so I have a, I have an iPod with a very eclectic mix of, uh, of music, but nearly all chart music. That's yeah. what, so everything recognisable to an extent. And we just play hours and hours of... And then when you hit upon a song you like, you let it run, you know. Yeah, and, no, it was... It Everybody was a, gets up and dance, and then we're, on we move. So we, we've done that for... I've spent months of my life playing that game. <laughs> I was introduced to that game by a friend of mine called Jeremy Pascal. He was a writer and uh, presenter, and he worked for Capital Radio. But he started off, when he was a young man, he was known as Mr. Monkey because he, he, was, he interviewed the monkeys for the NME. Right. He was the first person in this country to interview the monkeys when they were formed. Oh, right. And uh, so he was known as Mr. Monkey. <laughs> 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 He's a very funny man. He died uh, a, a, well, about 10 years ago now, I think, maybe mm. less actually. But uh, yeah, he was a very funny man. And I, I had to do, he was uh, non-religious and he, just before he died, he said to me, I, at the time I'd played quite a number of vicars. Yeah, that's on my list actually. Yeah, yeah. lots of vicars on the chair, just one after the other. I seemed to play it in all sorts of things. And he said to me, well, you can be my vicar when I die. And I laughed and he said, no, I'm serious. Oh. So I was, I did, I did the act as the vicar at his funeral, which I've done several times since. It's a very strange experience. What, put it at people's real funeral? Actually at the funeral, yeah. Wow. So instead of having a vicar there, you do the whole thing, you do the whole process, but you don't mention God. Weird. That's it is very weird. Strange. I did it just a few weeks ago for a neighbour. Wow. And it just—I think they, it's because they think they can rely on your professional ability to sort of stay cool, you know, not stand there and just blub all the way through, which is what you want to do. Yeah. Often because they're close friends. I've done, only ever done it for close friends. But actually, you do have that ability to, to separate yourself from 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 the actual moment, which you learn professionally. You learn to sort of detach yourself and to have a something that's thinking and planning and organizing ahead whilst you're in fact appearing to be incredibly genuine does it do you think it makes it easier for you to go through those experiences I, i'd shut myself off from it the moment that you feel yourself getting as you would do it at a friend's funeral emotionally involved you you go back into professional mode and you and you you suppress it so in fact for me quite often the problem is that afterwards i i feel really sort of void of uh, I've had no grieving or anything and I, yeah. have to, I have to do that in my own time on your own on I my guess. own yeah rather than it, what what's always great about it uh, you know great but it is great about a funeral mm. is that it's it's a group uh, grieving yeah. you grieve together and you're sort of celebrating someone's life together and if people are crying it's perfectly fine everybody cries people go yeah great one person cries everybody starts crying mm. whereas in that position you're not allowed to you can't do it mm. so it's weird it's very weird 
Yeah, it sounds it. I mean, the second question that I ask people is, is what do you do now? And I think we've already kind of alluded to what you do now mm. a lot already, yeah. which is you're an actor. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've been an actor really since I left college. I was, I mean, I trained, I did law and I was going to be a lawyer. And my father was a lawyer, although he actually really liked being on the stage. He really liked performing. So he did lots of, when I was a kid, I performed a lot with my dad. He was always dragging me on stage with him to sing songs. <laughs> he would do joke routines and monologues and sing songs and it's entertain sort of, people. He was it amateur art. dramatics? Or? It, not really. He never really did amateur dramatic. He actually organised his own sort of entertainment group. Cool. And they went round to all sorts of places, old people's homes and church halls. Oh, and, nice. and working men's clubs. And I've seen him play all sorts of different audiences. And he was, he was very good at it. I, mean, I think he had a go after the war when he left the army of getting into it professionally, but he didn't. And then he, he trained as a solicitor and... I guess That's there's kind of a crossover between lawyers and actors. Anyway, People always say that. I think there is. I think there is more with a barrister. My dad was a solicitor, although he was a bit of a chameleon. I worked with him for a year before I went off to university. And then you really do get to see someone. You know, you grow up with a your parents. You don't really know them unless you see them in a work situation. I mm. think. It's, they're very different people. How and he, was, he was very chameleon and had this ability to change depending on who he was talking to. So mm. he was a criminal lawyer. So he would either be talking to really hard, nasty criminals. Yeah. So he would sort of fit into their type. So he would go either really cockney or he was a person who would just take on people's accents okay. and so to make them feel at ease. Or he would be with incredibly posh barristers yeah. who you know, would come from you know, Eton and Cambridge yeah. and everything. And he would go along with that route. So mm. in fact, I, it's sort of what I did as well, really. I was brought up in Bermondsey in London. But I went down that... I always had that ability to fit into a group. So you can kind of, whatever social class you're talking to, you can kind of fit in. Yeah, I mean, lots of people, with the double-barrelled thing, lots of people have always, and because I do tend to play quite often, quite posh blokes, a lot of people think that I'm posh. And and a lot of people that I know and I've known for years, who I sort of met at, at Oxford, all think that you know they, they, which school did I go to and I, I just went to a secondary month <laughs> and in fact my mother is incredibly cockney well that's probably very useful for an actor to have I mean if you were went to a secondary school but then you went to Oxford I mean you've you've really experienced so yeah many two different sides of the world yeah. but the problem then is is actually trying to convince people who you genuinely are yeah you know like when you were talk, we were talking before we started recording about people playing themselves mm. in fact the thing I would feel most at ease with, although I've, I've, for so long I've spoken reasonably well and trained myself yeah. to speak reasonably well. So for a long time I haven't done my genuine accent. But I still feel quite at home with when I get with a bunch of Cockneys. Uh, well, I mean, that's a very lucky thing, though, to have a, a kind of accent to go back to. I've sort of moved all around, so I don't... Yeah. Sometimes, when I go back to Cardiff, I do get a Cardiff accent. It, it slips back in. Yeah, and I like, I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of really enjoy that. I like I like the Cardiff accent. I'm not like a sort of a person who, like, I'm not a sort of Rory Bremner who can just slip into accents. <laughs> I always have to think about them first and, in a way, make my voice go there for a bit before I can do it, you know. But I did once have to play Ivan Novello in a radio play, and it was a fabulous play. And of course, Ivan Novello became this this very sort of um, you know uh, I'll see you again and all that sort of thing. He was very charming, and everybody thought he was very handsome and good looking. But he was gay. They didn't want to prosecute him for that. But he got sent to prison for using too much petrol. 
during the war. Isn't that weird? He used <laughs> um, what was supposed to be an official during rationing. During rationing. Yeah. So he got sent to prison for it. And of course, what it was was, was actually the establishment sort of saying, you know, we know who you are. Mm. Not very nice. But they're just occasionally in that production, and lots of his friends, of course, people who companions for life, and his partner were from Cardiff. We recorded in Cardiff, and mostly all the actors were Welsh, and most of them from Cardiff. Just every now and again in this thing, we had to do a thing where I would slip back into a Cardiff accent. Oh, nice. Kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. that's a nice idea. But I, I, luckily, I had them to sort of uh, to, to to tell pick, you pick me up on yeah, it. Yeah, that's say good. A little bit more, you know. Yeah. But I think I got it. They, they said, you know, they said it was good. That's all right. <laughs> but just being kind. Uh, I'm, no, I'm sure. I'm sure you were good. I, I, I struggle, really struggle with accents. I've never been able to do it. I've, I've sort of given up, given, uh, accepted now that I, I'm never going to be uh, someone who can do accents. But then I don't act very much. No, days, so it's I, I don't no need, need it. Is need there it. Really. <laughs> I've only, I've only ever done it out of necessity. It's yeah. not. It's never been a sort of a fascination with. I mean, I know there are certain accents I can't do, or I, I always, you know that, but you think that actually. If asked, I would train myself. Yeah. I would teach myself. I yeah. did it once. Uh, Newcastle is notoriously, you know. It's hard. Geordie is yeah. a notoriously difficult accent. I had to do a, just a small part in a in a radio comedy once, playing a Geordie. And I thought, oh, I'm going to just die in front of the audience. This is so embarrassing. And I was up all night listening to recordings of people from Newcastle and noticed that, you know, women from Newcastle speak with a different accent to men. It's quite bizarre. Yeah. Got very different accents. And then, finally, although it wasn't quite Newcastle, I hit on a recording of Jackie Cholton talking. And uh, and he did the whole thing by putting it in the back of his throat. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. So he sort of swallowed it. And and then I thought, oh, I can do it. You find a way in, don't you? you have to yeah, find a kind of the placing of the yeah. thing. The placing of the voice. yeah. yeah. It's interesting. So how did you be, how did you break in? How did you become an actor? Well, luck really, I think. Actually, I I am I I had in, in, an intention sort of secretly, although everybody thought I was going to go on and I had my place to go and my articles to go and be a lawyer and I hadn't really told anybody I wanted to be an actor. But all the way through university, I just did lots and lots of plays. Far too many. Actually, I I worked it out after at the end of it and I did 33 plays. Wow. In the three years that, wow. I was, that I went right through the summer, I stayed up during the winter, worked with the local town theatre group. I just did play after play after play. So I was very lucky to get a degree, to actually finish my degree and also had a really good tutor. In the summer of my second year, I went up to Edinburgh. I had at that time, you know, been a member, I was a member of Alds and a member of college sort of drama groups and things. And I, I had an intention to eventually become an RSC actor or, or join the Glasgow Sits or something like that. Yeah. That was my idea. I was going to be a serious actor. But I kept getting put in comedy roles. <laughs> and I thought... And I, I, I enjoyed them and I was good at them. You know, I thought, this is good. But nobody would ever really take me terribly seriously. And then somebody said, oh, you should do the review. And I said, yeah, yeah, what's, what's a review? And I was thinking of, sort of Joyce Grenfell and things like that. You know, that's my idea of what a review was. People singing... And it was that, it was that traditional thing, but of course it had moved on enormously. I said, well, I'll have a go, you know. And I was already cast in three plays to be doing in Edinburgh. So I auditioned for the review, and so it, was actually, it was actually Angus Deaton, who, who has been a lifelong friend ever since, who auditioned me. He asked me two things. He said, can you sing? I said, yeah. He said, well, we're going to sing something for me. So I sang, I left my heart in San Francisco. And he went, yeah, good. He said, now can you sing and make it funny? So I went, uh, okay. I left my heart. Oh. 
And he went, that's all right. And then he said, can you grow a beard? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, I can. He said, great, okay, do you want to be in it? And that was it. That was my audition. Why did you have to grow a beard? We, he had an opening monologue that he'd written called Beards. Uh, okay. We never did it. We never actually, <laughs> we never did this opening monologue. But we did in that show do a parody of the Bee Gees, yeah. which uh, became very sort of popular and successful. And it got us the attention of BBC people. They came to see the show because people had said, oh, you should see this song. It's amazing. And that was and it, the heebie-jeebies. Heebie-jeebies, right? yeah. It was a, a, which I don't think many people remember now. But, but it was, was, a, was it really big in Australia? Do very remember big, that yeah. One? We were number one in Australia. It was wow. ridiculous. We sold loads of albums, went out there and toured around as, as like a pop group. It was absurd. <laughs> yeah, somebody that, just, somebody recent, my son, in fact, just the other day, found somebody had posted on, on YouTube a video of, of us singing it on a programme called Mundag's Borg or something in, in Stockholm. We went to Stockholm for a week and they paid for us to fly out there staying in hotels and and we just sang it on this and it's the only recording I think there is of us doing it live. Yeah, because and, I mean, and also recently, just the other not a couple of months ago, there was a big celebration of what would have been Douglas Adams's sixtieth birthday yeah. at the Hammersmith Apollo. And we sang it again. Oh wow. After all these years. Because nobody would and think we, I don't think people kind of think of Angus Deaton as someone who sings as well. No, he doesn't quite really. surprising. He doesn't really. <laughs> no, he's not got the greatest voice. He can sing, you know, but he's not you wouldn't say what a great singer. But he could certainly, you know, pull off do the, a harmony. Pull off the and routine, look very good. Which is the and he's very funny, you know, he's a very just very funny performer. So um, it was the heebie jeebies really when the BBC became a bit aware of you. Yeah, they came to see it and then a fellow called Jimmy Mulville, who was a very good performer and quite well known, I think, during the early eighties, and then he moved more and more into production and he's, he he formed Hattrick Productions. Oh right. Who do who did yeah. you know, have I got news for you and whose line is it anyway and they do loads of different You yeah, people will see them all the time at the end of great comedy yeah, shows. Yeah. 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 Hattrick is a really and so he formed that company and really it took over his life. So he sort of drifted away from performing. But he still does a bit. I do a radio show with him called Old Harry's Game, which is written by right. Andy Hamilton. That's right. You've done Jim. quite a few things with Andy Hamilton. Over the years yeah, I've done yeah. loads. He's fantastically loyal, Andy. When he finds Although I had a long, I stayed with him not long ago because we were doing filming very early in the morning, and I was he plays the devil in Old Harry's Game, and he wanted he did a documentary about the devil for BBC Four or something, and he wanted me to be the devil and and but a proper devil with yeah. horns and you know makeup. And, uh, <laughs> so we had to be makeup at sort of four o'clock in the morning. Oh, okay. But we were chatting, and he said that he's done lots of things over the years with people who are supposed to be extremely good actors, and they are extremely good actors. They've done amazing things. I won't name any names, but Michael Pennington, for example, <laughs> and, <laughs> who's a brilliant actor. But he said he once wrote a sketch for Comic Relief, and um, they said, why don't we put Michael Pennington in it? Put Michael Pennington in it, and he just couldn't do the comedy, just couldn't time the gags. And he says it, it's what he calls the beats. And in fact, the beats are, are the silences. The silence is which, it's a very individual thing with each comic, but it's an essential part of, mm. of, and sometimes a beat is non-existent, you know, sometimes the comedy comes out of actually just somebody saying, you come straight in with the funny line. So he's looking for people who, who know his beats. Who know, know what he means yeah. by his beats. And when he finds people who understands what, who understand what he's written, and, and I always have, I think, I always have 
been in tune with his style. Well, that's a nice so he's used, yeah. used me a lot. Because, yeah. I mean, for people who don't know, they might not know, Andy Hamilton did uh, Drop the Dead Donkey, didn't he? Mm. More recently, he did Out and, and before that, he was involved with Jimmy. In, uh, that's where I met Andy, through Jimmy Morville. Because oh, right. they did uh, Who Dares Wins okay. on Channel 4, which was a weird oh. programme with Tony Robinson and uh, Julia Hills. It was a big programme. Andy produced that and wrote like most of it with Guy Jenkin, who he writes with now. I find him a really interesting comedy writer because he he's, he he writes quite... Di- like, Outnumbered is very different from Drop, yeah. the De- Drop the Dead Donkey, but they're both, you know, written by him, and yeah. they're both really great, but in very different ways. It's it's, uh, it's really interesting. It, it, it is interesting, isn't it? And, and Outnumbered is, is, a, is an extraordinary thing to have thought of to yeah. do, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredibly brave. It's funny. I watched the... I remember watch, I watched the first episode and I didn't get it. I just was really annoyed. I was like, why yeah. are these really annoying middle-class characters? They're really yeah, yeah, annoying yeah, no, me. It is very And then I watched class. it again, and I was like, this is absolutely no perfect observation it's of amazing, annoying middle-class right, family. That's it, that's and then, and then through, you know, now I now I love all the characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though initially, I, you know, my, my back bristled by, by, you know, by the third I mean, series, I, think, I was I think like, Annie's, wow. They're... Annie sort of feels that it can't go on much more because... The children are growing up. And, and, and one of the problems with that is, and although... I can't remember the name of the boy, but the oldest boy has gone from being just as a very good intuitive actor to being a very good professional actor. Yeah. He really knows mm. his craft. You can see that from what he does. And now they give him the script. It's all scripted. He learns the lines and he does them brilliantly. You know. So when they're acting with him, the, the younger kids are still not, they're not given the script. They don't see the script. And in fact, they don't know what the story is until they get there. So each day, on almost each scene, they come out and say, you know, this is a scene about this and this, he's doing that, you're doing that, so you're talking about things like this. And they still do it, but they're getting very aware of their skills, I think, mm. now, and that makes it more difficult. And probably aware of how they're received by the public, Quite. self-aware. And what, what, what is... people find funny, so he has to try, so it's harder and harder work, I think, to make them, I mean, I'm not that I know how the programme's done, Inside Out, but I did do an episode of it. You did, you had the t- tennis episode. Yeah, that was, was a, that was a moment where I was like, "That's Mike." There he is, <laughs> there he is popping up on telly. It was fascinating, actually, because I'd always thought that I sort of understood how it was done. But they have the children for so little time because they have to be schooled, and you can only film for a certain amount of time. And it's a very complicated thing to film, mm. particularly when the children are being asked to improvise. Yeah, and it clearly is, and the people yeah. are, and the people around them therefore have to improvise back. So what happens? generally is that all the scenes are filmed so that the adult stuff is scripted yeah we know what we're going to say we do it we try to make it look as natural as their improvisation then the children come in and do their bits and anything that they add to a scene or anything that they improvise they they've the producers sort of remember and then when the children have gone again you redo the scenes to fit what they've done Ah, okay so in fact when you think about it, I always thought, God, those kids are fantastic. They're brilliant. And I've known Hugh Dennis and Claire Skinner for quite a number of years and always thought they were really skillful. It's really nice seeing them have a chance to sort of shine. Oh, they're to they really it. show yeah. what they can do, you know. Well, Claire's done some fantastic stuff over the years. But yeah, I think has, yeah. you, Hugh, or, or 
Because everyone just knows him as a, a kind of a comic voice. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he had very big breaks early on, didn't they? With but, you know, Punch and Dennis and, and all that sort yeah. of thing. Before that, the thing that would be dealing Skinner and all oh, sorts okay. of all sorts of things they've done over the years. So he's been around and had lots and lots of really good stuff. But you you didn't really realise quite how good an actor he was. Yeah, because it's that's the yeah. thing. It's acting it, as it goes on. It's it, it's not just comedy. That's what's very different. Yeah. Very different. I mean, I'm not saying that there weren't kind of pathos or bathos or whatever in Drop the Dead Donkey, but outnumbered has real moments where you really feel for them yeah absolutely you're really worried about their but, uh, but, uh, but my aberration for the two of them went went through the roof when i when i actually did it because they, you, you realize um because we were asked to do it because the children are there for so little time when the children are there the cameras face them the cameras are on them the whole time because mm. you you just can't afford not to, to have miss the anything yeah. so the camera just faces them and everything you do is off camera <laughs> so so then when the children are finished, the camera comes around and films you. So you do it with either a producer or somebody from the team just sort of kneeling on the floor reading the lines. So it's kind of a bit like green screen acting. Yeah. Yeah. So so all those fabulous scenes that, that Pete Dennis, his name is actually, that Hugh and Claire have done over the years with the children, if the children are not in shot, they're not there. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. Now I want to watch. Now, now I want to watch it, watch it again. Yes. and go. Blimey, you'd never know. Wow, how skillful is that? And also, they have to do loads of things for editing. Hugh had to do loads of stuff in our scene where the children weren't there, but they'd been sort of arguing, and he was supposed to be sort of saying to them, "All right, you yeah, no, stop now. All right, that's enough," you know. And of course, you can't do that over them because it's, you just you can't talk over them because you don't know what they're going to say. Yeah. But Andy sort of knows he wants to edit it that way later, so then he'd have to do lots of scenes where he'd go, "Yeah, but no." Yeah, all right, Ben, that's... No, stop that now. Yeah, can you not just... And you have to do loads of that. Wow. You know, and that's, make it look real. That's great. That's really it is, interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Sorry, I've gone on about it. No, no, that's fine. The process of... I always think... The process of, of that sort of acting is really fascinating. That's the sort of stuff that keeps me going and keeps me fascinated. No, that is very interesting to me. People always want to know how the process of yeah. acting works. Yeah. How do you feel about the word character actor? I, mean, I, don't, I don't mind. I feel that I very rarely played me. And actually, I get slightly peeved if people... I once went for something and somebody said to me, uh, and, and, they, and I said, can I go for that part? And they said, no, no, he, he's, he's horrible, that bloke, Mike. You're far too nice. <laughs> I wanted to, at that moment, show yeah. them how, how unnice I could be. Yeah. Because everybody has all sides to them. Yeah. And all you're doing as an actor is bringing those sides out or imagining what it would be like to be those I remember reading years ago uh, Humphrey Bogart saying that the best people the best villains were the nicest people that all the really nasty character actors who played horrible villains were the nicest sweetest people his reasoning behind it why he thought that actually it worked this phrase stuck with me because I thought it was so clear he said they play the best villains because they know how much it would hurt that's really it is good, isn't it? So, so in fact, they don't need to do that sort of moustache twirling. They don't need to play villainy. It's anybody who's nice and, and just sort of goes through life trying to be nice to people, when somebody just cuts them dead, all you have to do is, you know, in the middle of a conversation, just turn away from somebody. Or, you know, I'm saying, oh, you yeah, know, that's interesting because... Um, and then they're gone. You feel like shit, don't you? Mm. You just... And it really hurts. Yeah. You think, oh, God, how can they... Ignore me. That would be so rude to me. Yeah, that's true. That kind of binary opposite Whereas somebody thing. who doesn't care about people, who has no sort of concerns about people, 
would just go, well, fuck them. And they'd just go and go elsewhere. Mm. They'd just move on to someone else who's more useful. Yeah. They're not bothered. So I thought it was a very good... That's a really Friends. nice, a really nice, really nice uh, quote. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah, I mean, I know how much it would have. But you are an actor that hasn't off. Well, you probably have been, but you haven't in the public eye particularly been cast in kind of leading. No, not really, no, no, never really. No, um, I've always, and even even when I've done sort of a you know, whole series of things and done several series of something, I don't think that my characters are sort of people you would necessarily notice. I've always tried to make them fit in. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And, and quite often I play a sort of a supporting role in, in a television thing. And then it's fun to be whatever the script says you're supposed to be and, and to do it as well as you can. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel about that? Do you kind of crave success, like more I success than you've got? I'm not saying you're not successful because I, I think... I'd like more are. money. Yeah. That's what it is, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that I've done really good work. I feel that I've been working fairly consistently for most of my career I've had a yeah. you know I mean I've had a really successful career but uh, unlike most people's views of acting it isn't astonishingly well paid no, no unless you're famous yeah if you're very successful then it is ridiculous money and the difference between what somebody in people in the same job will be being paid is is absurd in television and film have you sort of felt that I mean because you must have had friends who've uh, gone to that yeah, I have, financial yeah. level, and, and suddenly they've, they've got houses all over the place. Yeah. You go, how does this happen? Yeah, and actually, it's all the periphery stuff. I think it's not necessarily the money they get paid for the work; it's the periphery stuff. It's the talking at corporate lunches and, you know, <laughs> for, for twenty-five grand a time. Yeah, it's, it's mad. It's it is, mad. It is crazy. And how much people will pay them to be in an advert? You yeah. know, suddenly somebody says, if somebody's been successful on television, they sort of feel they need to give them half a million pounds. Yeah, because you, you were the face for a while of Barclay Card, weren't you? Yeah, I've but, done, but, I've, but you're, I but, have done lots of adverts. But when you, were, when you were Barclay Card, you were a, a dad or whatever. Yeah, that's uh, right, rather, yeah. Uh, Whereas if, if, you know... If, rather than Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, exactly, you know, yeah. exactly. But you have managed to be comfortable, haven't you? I mean, that's that's what I think yeah, is yeah, impressive. It's, yeah, it's um, making a living... Anybody who's self-employed making a living is always a constant struggle. You're always looking for the next job. And you're always, look, you know, thinking, oh, I wonder what will happen, you know, and those sort of things. And, and, and it's a difficult job acting. I wouldn't advise people to go into it unless they were willing to accept a lot of rejection. Yes. Because it, it absolutely goes along with it. I think that's like, that's, that goes for any, anything in the creative area yeah, of, of, of life. It doesn't matter how great you were in something you've just done. You can then walk into a room and people go, uh, yeah, thanks very much. And you know they think, no, he's rubbish. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's astonishing. Even after all these years, I still have to go and prove myself to people all the time, constantly. Can you do it? Go and do it again. Show me you can do it. Prove me, prove you can do it. And you think, so well, I've been making a living doing this for years. Yeah. You know? So I must be able to do it. it. The question should be, do you fit this role or do you fit the casting of this role and those sort of things. But sometimes you feel that it's not. It's can you act? Yeah. You know, which is weird. And that must be, feel very personal. Like, that's the thing. Yeah, when I was younger, I got very, I used to get very down about if I'd go for a job and it was, you know, I think, oh, it's a great job. I'd love, to, I really want to get this job. I used to get really, you know, depressed if my agent rang and said, no, they really loved you and, you know, they thought you were great, but they went for the other bloke. Mm. And I found myself time and time again getting down to sort of two or three people going for a part and actually not getting it. Because it's you, isn't it? I mean, it's your, you it's your it, face, you it's your performance. You feel it's as, you, as if you're yeah. being personally rejected. Mm. You know? But it's not the case. It really often is. Whether it suits, where it fits, you know, yeah. and just those sort of things. And, and 
what the other people have done. And, and I was always up against good, really good actors. So it wasn't as if they were picking someone who was crap, you know. They were picking people who were really good. Yeah. <laughs> and you just happened to be not quite as good on the day or whatever. You know, and I did once audition for a series of commercials for Germany. I mean, actually, the jobs that most hurt were the ones where it was, you know, artistically, it was great. And he said, I'd really love to play that part. It was a really brilliant series. Yeah. I'd love to work with that person. I bet. But actually, the one that really sticks in the mind is I once auditioned for a series of commercials for a building firm, a bit like B&Q, in Germany. And to play the man, I think they're called Peter Perfect, is the name of the firm. So anybody who knows anything about Germany will be able to tell me if I'm right or wrong. But uh, I was to play Peter Perfect. And I went and they had these drawings of him. And he's, up until that point, he'd just been a drawing on the front of the building of a jolly bloke in overalls. Ah, OK. So and I looked at this drawing, and me and this other bloke in this room looked at this drawing, and thought, that looks just like us. And so all we had to do was walk in, really. And it got down to the two of us, and they were talking about... Um, a contract that would have been a 10-year contract. <laughs> like, it was worth millions of pounds. Wow. And the two of us sat in a room opposite each other. I went in first, did my bit. He then went in, did his bit. And then we went away. And we both shook hands saying, you know, good luck. And his luck was better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but you were quite lucky early on, I think, because yeah, yeah. you were the voice of the Spit Image chicken song, weren't you? I was, yeah. And you must still be getting royalties from I've that. I've done lots of different things like that over the years. I mean, I've been... I've been uh, my career, really, when I say I work constantly, is that I have fingers in a lot of pies. Yeah. I've always been a jack-of-all-trades, and many say not a master of any. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, people say that about me. So. Yeah. But that's good. I like it. I like being a jack of all trades. I like sort of jumping from one type of job to another. I've done very serious things. I've done plays, telly, radio, commercials, corporate stuff, all sorts of different roles. And it's it's good, you know. And and, and the same thing with, you know, I've done children's cartoons. And, that's right. Yeah, you've you done know. and you've done pantomime dames. Pantomime dames. I mean, that's weird. that came right late. Well, I suppose it would do. But, yeah. But I've not. I always thought I would be good at pantomime because I always liked pantomime. I like taking the kids to pantomime. But I often went to see pantomimes and thought, yeah, not very good. It's not doing it right. It's not doing it right. And eventually somebody said, do you want to have a go at it? And I said, yeah. And I did. And I really love doing pantomime. It's incredibly hard work, pantomime. Yeah. People don't realise how difficult it There's is. There's a lot of cues and a lot of... like. It's a, it's oh, but also, every time you go to see a pantomime and you watch people and it's two hours or more of That's people, right. you know, Full on running around crowd things. work as well, yeah. crowd work, you know, just being up for things and allowing it to change. And, and kids will see right through somebody who, who is just taking it easy. And you've got to play to everyone, haven't you? You've got to play to the kids, you've got to yeah, play to yeah. the adults who have brought them, you've got to play no, to the dame, old, old, old people. And also, you remember yeah. that uh, with us, particularly with a dame, with everybody else, when they go off stage, as you sit down over a cup of tea, dame goes off, checks their makeup powders their face because they're pouring with sweat, changes all their clothes, change, <laughs> changes their costume, and by the time they've done that, it's time to go back on again. That's right, because you know, the dame wears a lot of, like Beyonce. Uh, different dress, different, <laughs> that's right, yeah. It's as hard as being Beyonce, except, <laughs> but without a wind machine. Yeah, without the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard work. And then, of course, you hardly ever only do one show in a day. You often do. You do that show, and then everybody goes away, and they go, God, oh, it was brilliant, great fun. And then you've got to go and do it again to another crowd. And sometimes you've got to do it again, three shows. And that's exhausting. Yeah, of course. Cause you so, got, um, yeah. you know, it's a great way to slim. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always lose a lot of weight. I was talking to Matt, who 
you know as well, yeah. who, who came to this house once before. I said, what what questions shall I ask Mike? He, he sort of... Uh, <laughs> he said, was that tenor? <laughs> <laughs> I would never ask this kind of question normally, but I find it quite amusing that he suggested it. Okay, I'm intrigued now. If, if you were in the Olympic Games, yeah, what dream. event would you compete in and where would you place? What, what kind, now? Yeah. yeah. Well, I always... Would have I would have loved to have been a sprinter. Yeah. When I was at school, I used to be in the sprint car. I, I never had the. Uh, I couldn't be asked to run <laughs> further, basically. But I I was quite fast. I was nippy as a small boy. I was fast, and I was always in the sprint race, and often won. And then, of course, as time went on, I stayed at five foot eight, and other people became six foot two. Yeah. And, and anyway, they worked harder at it, you know. I went from being on the wing in the rugby to being, you know, hooker. Because <laughs> in those days, they just put some little bloke in between two big fat blokes. But I, I would, if I was going to be in I'd be in the sprint. And where would I be placed? I wouldn't even have left the blocks. <laughs> That's the truth, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it's an absurd thing to ask a man of 54. Well, it's a strange one. Be, you know. It is a really strange one, but I thought I would ask it I anyway. couldn't, I... I I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've never been. I've never really played a lot of team games. When I was at school, I played a lot of team games. But I like things that where you sort of do it on your own, really. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. my work is generally with other people, apart from things like audio books. I'm just you. You as you arrived today, I was marking up my script, my enormous script. Uh, n- next week, I'm reading. It's called The Long Earth. And it's Terry Pratchett's new book. Ah, yes. And, and I'm reading it for an audio book. It's Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter. They've That's written it right. together. And it's an adult uh, sort of uh, science fiction book. Oh, but I, right. but it, they're incredibly difficult to read. People think that, you know, you sit down and read them. Mm. But I think only Stephen Fry does that. You know, everybody else has to work at it and almost get to know it. So a sort of a 400-page book, you have to read three or four times you mark it up with you know, saying where to emphasize and, and it's also got loads of different accents most of them different american accents you have director you have a producer sits there okay. but they don't really tell you what to do only only if you're sort of dr- dramatically wrong they sort of really just check that you're reading it as written you know so if you make any mistakes or miss any words out they'll say oh go back but to a large extent it's up to you you know how you sit and tell the story That'll be six days from 10 till 5 with an hour for lunch, sitting in front of a microphone. Wow. Just reading. Wow. It's hard work. Yeah. Isn't it? do, you, do you take, I mean, I guess you've already read the script, so you've already taken in the information. So by that stage, it's, yeah. it's not even, you're not even discovering the story. No. You're, you're, no, you're not sort a different of with everybody else. Time. No, you've, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're trying to be the storyteller. Yeah. You, the, the the enjoyment is thinking of one person or one person sitting listening to it as if they were sitting opposite you and you were trying to take them along through the story and entice yeah, them on or, or you know surprise them or, or amuse them or frighten them and so it is done like a performance yeah I mean that's one of the things that you have to do in what I'm doing here in podcasting especially yeah. when, I, when I do sort of special episodes where I have to do pieces to the audience you mm. have, you have to imagine your audience member, your individual person yeah. you're talking to, or you can't find it in your voice 
having an idea of who you're talking to kind of really... I it think, really does yeah, help. ...comes yes. across. Yeah, it comes, always does. You've recently become a, grand, a grandparent. I have become a granddad. Which is lovely. That's absolutely brilliant, yeah. I had children... Uh, I was 23, just turned 23. Wow, that's... And my... Yeah. So my... my uh, in fact, I think it was 22. My wife was 21. So for, you know, I suppose for sort of middle-class types, that's... Um, that's that's quite young. My sister had a, her, her child when she was 16. Yeah, so that's right. You see, working not, class I'm not, oik. Well, I'm not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's the thing. We're not. We're I don't not. know. It's amazing, though, isn't it? But, I mean, uh, well, of course, you know, it's not. People often have them younger and everything. Yeah. But, but, you know, and it can work very well. But, for, but within my group of friends, particularly actors who are all out there and sort of, try, you know, when they were younger, it yeah. can be a very selfish profession that yeah. you can concentrate on yourself all the time and your career and me and everything. And a lot of them didn't really get into serious relationships until they were in there. Must put a lot know, of pressure on 40s. you as well if you suddenly you've got I've some got other people. Oh, that's right. I mean, I think yeah. that my children, having had children, having had a family, it has made me make choices in acting that I may not necessarily have made if I'd been on my own. Mm. Uh, I'm sure of that, in fact. I, I was often... Because I had ambitions to be a stage actor and to, to, to do a lot more stage work than I've done. And I did do that when my children were young, but I, it got to the point where I thought, I just can't spend this amount of time away from them. I just can't. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And a lot of touring, a lot of going off to places. I was offered two and a half year tour with the English Shakespeare Company, with uh, you know touring around doing War of the Roses, so sort of five Shakespeare plays. Tremendous all opportunity. Around the, all around the world. Yeah. I, I, to play Hotspur in one, you know, and it was just, it, was, it would have been great. But... The idea of going away for two and a half years and seeing my children occasionally, mm-hmm. you know, and coming back and finding them grown up almost, yeah. would have been awful. I couldn't bear the idea. So I, although terribly tempted by the work, I, I did in the end have to say to them, you know, I'm, sorry, I'm really sorry, I can't do it. And they were very good. They were very understanding. That was Michael Pennington. God bless him. <laughs> He's a lovely man, actually. Very sweet man. Yeah. He was very good because he. I went through a very intensive audition process and they really went out of their way to work out exactly the sort of parts that I should be playing and they said these are the parts we want you to play in, in these plays we're going to offer it to you are you ready and, and having gone through that whole thing I then suddenly went oh, shit, I really can't I just can't I'm sorry and I felt I'd wasted that they could have you must have said, been worried about how that would have yeah. that might have ramifications on your career in general well yes and they, 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 they could easily have said yeah. you what you've absolutely wasted our time here. yeah what the hell did you audition for? Yeah. But they didn't. They went, no, no, we, we absolutely understand. You never know. You know, you have to live life to work out what's going to happen. Yeah. You, 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 you know, you can't say before the audition's necessarily that, that you understand what it's going to No, no, no I mean, before the audition, the idea yeah, that, you know, wow, well. I've got to go for this job. And then when it was actually there in front of me, I thought, oh, no, Jesus, I can't do that. And, and now your children have, have grown up and they, they've now Hannah's, Hannah's got a child. Yes, and my son's getting married in the, in the summer. Wow. And it's, it's, it's fabulous. I, I, I'm very excited. I've spent a lot of time being a lively uncle to a lot of my friends' young children. Yeah. I love children. I loved having my own children. I loved spending time with them. They were never a burden. I actually, my, the difficulty came when they didn't want to go out with me anymore. <laughs> when they didn't want to go to the beach or the park. They wanted to go with their friends. Yeah. And I found it difficult. My wife was very good when they became teenagers. She, she was very relaxed about it. Whereas I so, almost took it as a personal insult that they were more interested in, other, in boys and, you know, or, 
yeah. or, or their mates. Or well, maybe that says them. something about your sort of respective careers, doesn't it? Because yeah, yeah. as an actor, you would want the audience. I, want, yeah, whereas, I loved it. I love children the most fantastic. Maybe that's why I started doing pantomime. Yeah, whereas your wife is a doctor, isn't she? She's, she's a, a doc- psych- doctor of science, although she now works, she works at Watersands. At the moment, oh. it's a, a very long story. It's a okay. very long story to do with you know. Well, it might be. It, um, might, it might be something. And for, also, for also her conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's also you know a moral story for her to tell, rather. Yeah. Uh, and it's also to do with lots of things and the way that that uh, science is funded and the struggle mm. to constantly find funding to do more research and everything. And then and and our son was taught at home. We taught him at home for about four years, and it really became impractical for her to carry on working. Yeah. So she stopped, and now she's got a waterstones, which she really likes. You know. Were you ever intimidated by being her, so clever? I've, I've always been intimidated by, by her intellect. It's it's way beyond mine. I'm a good blagger. I'm, I know lots of things about lots of things, yeah. but I don't know anything much about anything. Really. <laughs> well, at least you can blag it. I, I'm, I find I'm, I'm, I sort of start talking about things and then... Uh, quickly unravel because I don't know anything about <laughs> there's nothing like recording lots of conversations to see how, how full how of shit you are you know, yeah I know that's true you're a, a grandparent and you're yeah, yeah. also kind of um, you're moving into different roles I guess we were sort of starting I'm, to I'm definitely about moving into more granddad roles you know <laughs> I mean although actually strangely I've been playing those sort of roles for a, a while now I, there was a, there's a thing called International Movie Database which is an internet yeah. sort of IMDb, resource yeah. IMDB they had me down on their uh, IMDB, which a lot of casting directors use to check up people. Well, let's have a look at him, and they look at you because it's a free resource. Yeah. And I, apparently, I was born in 1947, according to this thing, and I couldn't get them to change it without sending my birth certificate. So for a long so time, so Wikipedia says you're 1958. 58 is right. Right. Okay. And I said to IMDB, check every other piece of information about me 1958 they said well we're not taking an actor's word for his it's age it's so hard to change these things it's once impossible. they are out there isn't it wow and so but that was I guess you're, but you, you didn't your, your hair's been I've been, I've been grey for years, right. and years you're one and years. of those people who goes grey very early yeah I, I was yeah and, you know, in my 20s I started going grey wow although I've looked at things it's a strange thing about being an actor you're constantly confronted with your own Appearance. self at different ages yeah you know, so most people go according to photographs, whereas I just suddenly I pop up on the telly and something being repeated and think, oh, Jesus, look at me oh, there. Yeah. Oh, I'm so slim. That must be so a real, young. yeah, that must be a real factor for you because you have been in lots of, lots of things in, in bit parts, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, that you, you know, the TV's never safe if you're not feeling very secure about <laughs> no, yourself. No, if you're not, you're thinking, you're feeling a bit old and fat. You, know? <laughs> you think your hair's falling out and you think, oh, no. And then <laughs> on you come looking slim and... You know, of YouTube is disastrous. Yeah. Because people are always sending me, you know, through Twitter and things, they send me links to, I was just watching you on the bill. And you go, on the bill? And you can't resist it. You think, I'll have to watch, see if I was any good. And you click on this thing and watch yourself and think, oh, God, that's so good looking. <laughs> How are you about watching yourself? Like, do you I, feel comfortable, like, watching I like your watching. I like watching what I've done because I remember specifically why I've done everything. I like to see whether... Directors have seen those things and, and have kept them in because they have lots of choices yeah, about shots yeah. and you shoot it from all sorts of ways. So uh, how things are edited. Yeah, and people sometimes, don't know about that so much as well. Like yeah. Sometimes you might have given the best performance ever, but they might have picked all of the, the so they use shots. something else. Yeah. And you think, oh, no, they use that take. I don't know. It was much better than the one before. Hmm. You know, and that's down to them. So you are their beck and call, really, in all those things. But the best thing then is to try and make each take interesting. Yeah. I worked with Sally Phillips recently. Do you know the actress Sally Phillips? Uh, She's so. in 
well, let me think where she, she was in Smack the Pony originally. Ah, yes, I know her. Very I know good, her, yeah, yeah. Very pretty. And she was in, she's been in lots of things, of things, sometimes you know, serious, really, yeah, sometimes, sometimes but lots very, often comedy, yeah. Often comedy. But she's very, very good. And she and clearly was very good the moment you saw her, you know. I think she came through, um, she came through Oxford and got picked up for review. So, you know, so she's got that whole, we had a shared history really and we spoke quite a lot about it and I worked with her recently and she was always apologising for the fact that she never did anything the same twice. She said, I'm so sorry. And the director said, that's great. Can you just do that again? But she said, I, I don't know, I can't. <laughs> and, and, wow. and it was interesting that she really couldn't. She absolutely, every time you came to it, she just went to it fresh. She just did something else. Whatever she f- was right at that moment. So she was absolutely in the moment. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. It was brilliant to work with. And yeah, it, it must was, be really exciting. It was, it was fantastic because, although I've worked with lots of actors who, whatever you do, whatever, because you know from your point of view that if you change something, it ought to affect the other person. It ought to vary what they do. But I've worked with lots of actors who it has no effect <laughs> whatsoever. So clearly they've decided what their performance is and they're going to do it come what Regardless. may. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you like that thing of, how are you going to do that? Oh, that's it. Oh, well, I'll do this then. Oh, are you going to do it that fast? I always think it's very interesting. You learn lines and that's the first thing you have to do. You get your script and you have to learn the lines. And it's sort of the only power you have really to turn up knowing that you know the words. Yeah. Everything else is in other people's hands. And then... Having learnt these lines, you then usually in a little room somewhere on a toilet or a makeup room or something, you'll meet the other actor and say, Do you want to go through the scene? And they go, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'll find out if that other actor is lazy because if they sort of then are doing it from the script, you think you haven't learned the lines, and that's the only thing that we have any control See, over. That's the thing I've never, that's why I'll never be an actor, or I mean, I'm, I'm, I like to act, but the reason that I can't do it, I just really have this problem learning lines even as a musician I can't even learn the lyrics of my own songs (laughs) it's just something in my brain it's very difficult I mean like obviously I I work on that and I can manage to get a song yeah uh down thank thank goodness but uh I mean that's always been my my real problem is learning lines yeah I mean it's not not easy it's not easy I mean it is a thing that if you do it regularly you get better at it right obviously so it's a skill that you can practice but at the same time, there's no secret to it, really. It's just repetition. Yeah. And, then I, just and I just, repetition, repetition. I think people people have different kinds of memories as well. Yeah, yeah. And so if, you're, if you've got a kind of memory that can learn lines, you, you know, that's got to be a, an And compartmentalising it as well, you know, so that you will know this scene. Now we do this scene. And you go, right, and you go to that part of your memory, which is, you know, immediate, really. So you, you, you've learnt it in the few days leading up to it. And it's not like you're doing a, the lines of a play that you've been doing for a long time, so you sort of say them, you don't even think about it. You know, you, you're thinking about other things, and the lines are just coming out automatically. Often with television and filming, there is an element of having to sort of almost go through it, right, and then I say this, and then I say this. And it's good to do it with the other actor and practice it just before you get on camera. You don't often get much time. It's quite quick, the process. But often when you get to the end of a scene and they say that's great okay we're going to move on to the next scene you sort of throw it away it's very difficult a lot of actors if for example you do a scene and then they go oh we just realized we missed the camera shot so we're in the same set so we're just going to go back to the scene before and could you just do that again and you and both actors if you're doing a a duologue Mm -hmm. you often look at each other and go 
God. Because you've thrown it out. I've, it's gone. <laughs> and you have to go, can I have to see the script? And you have to look at it again and remind yourself what so, it is. I mean, can you remember all of the scripts you've learned then? Or no, no, or you absolutely you've, not. You've thrown them all out? Because some no. people can. Some, I mean, some, I, mean, I remember like... jokes. I remember, I'm quite good at remembering jokes. Mm-hmm. I'm quite good at remembering funny lines. And in fact, I've had that experience quite a lot recently with meeting people that I've, I've known for a long time and just chatting. And, you know, as you get older, you do tend to talk more and more in a reminiscent way. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, there's an actor called Steve Frost. Do you know Steve Frost? Steve Frost and Mark Arden used to do a stand-up routine together. And he'd almost forgotten that he did it. He'd almost forgotten that they used to do this routine. Wow. And I saw him at the comic strip, the club, not the productions, yeah. first of all. And they played these two blokes. And I said to him, that joke you used to do about a citizen's arrest. And he said, what's that? I don't remember that, Mike. What's that joke? And I said, Mark used to say... Yeah, I, um, I made a citizen's arrest this morning. And you say, all oh, right, what's that then? What's, what's the difference between a citizen's arrest and a, and a police arrest? And he says, well, a citizen's arrest is, is almost exactly the same as a police arrest, that you don't get that searing pain in your bollocks. <laughs> uh, that was the joke. And I, don't, I haven't heard that joke since 1981. Yeah. Lines like that often stay with me. There was a joke that Angus wrote years ago. I was on holiday with him a while back. And we were sitting around drunkenly, as you do. And I said this line, and he said, how the hell did you remember that? I said, well, I always thought it was a funny line. So it stayed in my head, you know. I do have a memory for for funny, the line was, I returned to the hotel room to find my wife and the hotel porter putting the shag pile carpet to the use after which it was presumably originally named. (laughs) And I thought it was a good line. I I like the convoluted nature of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's his. I like. I sometimes like a long joke. That's part. Well, that's it. That's his kind of. It that's is. his style, isn't it? That's what he did on. Have Have I got news for you? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a style. I think that he learned from because he, he learned. He, he worked with and admired enormously, as we all do. Richard Curtis. So when he was first in review, Richard Curtis wrote most of the sketches, and I think Angus's style was, came from that. Was learned from. Richard Curtis. Oh, that's interesting. Before I ask you the last question, Matt was mentioning somebody that you worked with called Jeffrey Perkins. Yeah, yeah, the great Jeffrey Perkins. Very much, Matt, Matt very much admires him. And you well, say, anybody who knows anything about Jeffrey Perkins admired him. Uh, first of all, first and foremost, he was a, a very dear friend. Hmm. Uh, we were fortunate, I was fortunate just when we came out of review and we got off of the radio thing, then we first did the pilot. We did the pilot show with uh, the people who had been in the review in Edinburgh. Mm. And then when we were offered the series, they said, look, you need somebody else. They said to Angus, I think, you need somebody else to be writing with you because I'm not sure you can do it all on your own. And he was writing most of it. We were doing the odd bit, but it was mostly Angus. And they suggested Geoffrey, who at that time was a radio producer, but a very good writer as well. And it would be good to have him involved. And also he was a very funny performer. So Jimmy got Jeffrey involved, and Jeffrey at that point had already devised most of the funny rounds for I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Right. Jeffrey, although he always says, no, it wasn't really, it was a sort of a team thing. Jeffrey, Barry Cryer always says that Jeffrey came up with Mornington Crescent. Oh, right, wow. And one song to a tune of another, and he came up with lots of rounds that they weren't playing before then, when Jeffrey produced it, that series. So he... He's very influential in that area, but he'd also had produced Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy right. on the radio with Douglas Adams. So 
had done extraordinary things. That's already. right. And he was, was only a, was it was radioactive. Only, was that the that company? Then we came and did radioactive. Yeah. So he was only you know, two years out of university. He'd already done an, an amazing amount of wow. things. Worked on Weekending. Worked on a show called The Jason Explanation, which was David Jason's first big break, I think, oh, on radio. Yeah. Which is why years later, when he was head of comedy at the BBC, he was able to persuade David Jason to come back and do and finish off Fools and Horses. Oh, right. With those four episodes. Oh, right. Wow. Because he went that far back with him, you know. That's right. Matt works in radio. Well, he freelances in radio now. Yeah. Uh, as, you know, but Jeffrey's influence... He's so... He's, that's I mean, he's his, said, he's his so influence professionally is, is astonishing. I mean, it's really uh, sort of unsung. Because he was the first in many things. And he changed... He sort of devised the style of many shows that were very different. He, for example found the writers of Father Ted working on, they did Big Train, a series called Big Train. Yeah, I've seen that. And he loved their writing so much, he said he should write something for us. So they wrote a parody, a sort of a documentary style looking at priests in Ireland. And Geoffrey said, no, this is, what you need to do is we, we should make this a proper sitcom because, you know, we don't want to be looking outside laughing at them. We want to be in there loving them, you know. And so they rewrote it. And the, both the writers of Father Ted always say that they would never have written a series if Geoffrey hadn't sort of led them there. And he produced all of Father Ted. Shows like Game On. Yeah, I loved, I actually really loved Game On. Jeffrey, but also, you know, loads of big things he did. He did Friday Night Live, all those sort of things. The Man from Auntie, Spitting Image. Oh, just a ridiculous list. Of all yeah. Harry Enfield, Harry and Paul. He did all the Harry, oh, and, wow. Harry and Paul. Um, he, and did, he did all Harry Enfield's first few series it's so funny how it goes because people remember the actors don't they and they, the, the people behind the scenes yeah, yeah. aren't aren't spoken about no no you know he was incredibly influential in, in the world of comedy there are hardly an area in, in comedy that Jeffrey didn't touch and everybody who knew him knew that he was a genius as far as um I mean probably his great skill with script editing it was which is a, a absolutely underrated skill yeah you know? Oh, yeah. the, only, the, the only person I think who comes close to that is a man called Paul Mayhew Archer, who was one of the writers on The Vicar of Dibley. Well, the main writer, I think, of The Vicar of Dibley, but also in, has been involved in loads of other shows where he's sort of tightened up the script, made it mm. a bit better. Oh, I, I'm, as, a, as a writer, I'm, I'm, I have endless respect for editors and, mm. and, and Particularly at the crave beginning a time a when I will have one. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. hard editing your own work. You yeah. need somebody to look at it. At the beginning of a project when you've got a really great idea, mm. but it's not quite working. Jeffrey was the sort of person who would be able to come in and just say, take all that out or move that there. Or ben Elton always says that, that Jeffrey made his career when he did all those Friday night and Saturday night live monologues, mm. he would turn up with sort of 20-page rants about Thatcher, and Geoffrey would just take them away for 15 minutes, put red lines through great big sections, move one bit here, and all those monologues were, to a large extent, Geoffrey's construction. Oh, Ben's wow. writing, but Geoffrey's ordering. Yeah. You know, Harry, the same thing, says that he was doing a bit of stand-up, but it was Geoffrey who sort of led him down so many paths. He was the person who persuaded Paul to perform, you know. Paul Whitehall. Yeah, so oh, you've wow. got to perform, you know. Well, that's a it's that's amazing, a that's a legacy on yeah, people Charlie, own, isn't it? Charlie would, you know, Harry's mates and co-writers, just loads and loads of people who owe their careers and and things to Jeffrey. But but beyond that, he was the most delightful man, absolutely the, the kindest, most thoughtful man, incredible. Oh, and just oh, my um, my fortieth fortieth birthday party, which we had here, we went to. I went to pay the 
bill or something, and, and, and he said, uh, and Fred said, it's been paid. And I said, what, who? And I read my wife, I said, do you pay the bill? And she said, no. And Jeffrey had just gone around and said, oh, and he just got in. Oh. He was incredibly generous. Delightful man. I mean, yeah. amazing, amazing. Friendly, and they just dropped dead in the street, just bang. <laughs> I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah, not only that, I'd be I knew, but sort of, um, sort of beyond that, the thing that is that I always thought was most extraordinary about Jeffrey is it's quite personal. Him and his dear wife lost their first child uh, to a cot death when he was six months old, which was awful, really, really awful. We went to the funeral, which is the most devastatingly awful thing to see a, a baby in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, Jeffrey carried the coffin out afterwards, and and, and at the end pouring with rain and he stood by the grave and read a letter to his son saying how much he loved him and how, how grateful he was. It was extraordinary. That sounds like a yeah, very bad moment. But, I can but he, he took that thing, you know, for many people that sort of thing would, would destroy you. I mean, another thing would have destroyed me as a person. Mm. I don't think I could recover from something like that. It would have affected the rest of my life detrimentally it would have ruined it I think I would have been bitter and angry for the rest of my life but Jeffrey took it and went life is so precious and so unpredictable that we'd better make the most of it wow it's incredible isn't it that's and amazing he did. he did and he was working in comedy as well yeah, yeah. he did wow. Catherine Tate there's another one he found Catherine Tate <laughs> up to just then goes you know Benidorm he persuaded Darren Lytton to and Darren always says this that he said to Darren, you know, write something. And he said, well, what? And Darren, he said, oh, I don't know, write something, write a sitcom. So he wrote it. He said, I've written a sketch about some people by the pool in Spain, you know, taking, well, by the swimming pool, they're looking around and they're swingers. He said, and they're sort of eyeing up, seeing who they could sleep with. And Jeffrey said, well, that sounds like a funny idea. He said, well, where's it set? And he said, I don't know. He said, was it set in Tuscany? Are they in a posh place? Or, or is it set in Benidorm? And he said, oh, Benidorm. So we'll write... <laughs> Now write about all the other people around the pool. Wow! And that's how he wrote. That's where he started writing Benidorm. Well, he sounds like a. I mean, he sounds like a fantastic man, an individual. Amazing man. And oh, sorry I'm, to have touched on it. No, no, no it's all right. I, I, um, it's it's. I'm, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard, but yeah. I'm delighted to uh, always to talk about Jeffrey. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, Matt said, you know, his legacy is immense. I didn't realise how immense it. it no, sounds no, it's like just, it was. I mean, I'm just. That's a brief resume. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, that's, that's I've never amazing. known. I've never known anything like the the two days after he died. There was a, such a shock wave for everybody who'd ever known him. The people at uh, uh, the really useful group, a friend of his there, Andre Bozinski, who ran the really useful group for Andrew Lloyd Webber at the time, sent an email out saying we need to all get together and talk about Jeffrey because people are so devastated. He said so. Uh, we've Andrew's let us use the the bar at the uh, London Palladium. So we went to this thing, we had to spill into the theatre. It was, there were hundreds and oh, hundreds wow. of people there. Well, I mean, I can understand why, because he sounds like a, a really lovely man and mm. his, his his reach sounds like it's gone a very long way. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It seems almost crass to Simon us. Simon Pegg, there's another person he... <laughs> wow. I, just can't, I know, I guess, I can't, every time I think about it, you go, you just goes on and on and on. Well, he sounds, well... Yeah. Look, yeah. Well, the Simon, Simon Pegg's an example of what we were talking about earlier on. Yeah. Somebody who now is yeah, in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, the last question seemed very crass to ask this after going to a kind of very 
real place uh, is the yeah. last question because generally asked. I'm not no I don't mean that you're not real <laughs> I just mean you know you know what I mean when you know because yeah. now I'm going to say to you do you have anything that you'd like to plug which seems <laughs> very ridiculous doesn't it not really no I no, no, I don't have anything I'd like to plug no well that's a, a no if I've, I'm never that bothered about people seeing or hearing or watching I don't particularly do maybe that's why I'm not famous <laughs> well because I'm not bothered. I really, you know, people say to me, I wander around town, and I know most people in the town in Tunbridge Wells, I've known them for a long time, shopkeepers and things, and they say, you're right. And if I've been in something, the sort of thing they watch, like Benidorm or something, they all go, yeah, saw you on a telly. Yeah, you were on a telly again. And I go, yeah, that's right. Whereas in fact, I may well have been on the telly 20 times in that yeah. year. yeah. But they would never have watched it. Was the sort of thing they wouldn't have watched, you know, or, or it's just it wasn't the same thing. Or I've been on the radio lots. I'm not that bothered, you know. No, I mean that's fine. I mean, if often... I was doing a well, one man show trying to promote it, I'd now talk about it endlessly. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, know, it's it, yeah. it's sort of the the questions almost sort of just set up so that people can get the most out of, yeah. out of the show as possible. <clears throat> what what my limited reach is, they can they can benefit yeah, from. All publicity, good publicity. But a lot of my friends are people who <laughs> desperately need any publicity. Yeah, I mean, not my friends. But. Yeah, I think it's a <laughs> it's a fantastically difficult world, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that thing of um, there used to be so few routes that you could follow, mm. so few ways of making it. As it yeah. was, you know, you had a band, you had to do some gigs, try and get someone to sign you up, and hopefully they would promote you, and then you'd yeah. perhaps get on somebody else's tour and you'd be picked up. That you know, that was it. Yeah. And now it's just there's so many ways. Oh, it's just, it's that's like it's, it's gone from one extreme to the other. And every time that you think, every time you go, oh, that's the way to do it. Every time everybody goes, ah, right. You know, the idea that you would now use, see, I can't even remember what the resource is, but how did um, Lily Allen, for example, she just... She was, went, she was a, wasn't became even Facebook, she, was it? Wasn't MySpace. It MySpace, was MySpace thing that see, made, made Lily Allen. MySpace. But every time one person makes it in one area, then that kind of closes that door you in go, a weird way, because that, that, that's the thing that made her, and then somebody else goes, looks oh, well, at a copy in Lily trying Allen. To do yeah. the, they're trying to do the MySpace thing, yeah. you know, and it's gone. I know Lily Allen's mum... And, and her dad, of course, well, yeah, because of... I you know, imagine you've worked But I know her mum, and, and I didn't know it was, her mum was her mum for quite a long time. She didn't <laughs> mention it. And I've known her for quite some time. And then we were we were in Italy on holiday. She was there. And she's a fabulous woman. Really brilliant fun to spend time with. We were playing the iPod game. <laughs> we had the, oh, let's listen to this one. And wow. now who knows what this one is? We've come full circle. There we were, back to playing the iPod game. And I said, and then I was going through it, and I went, oh. And there was a song that my son had written and recorded all on his own in his bedroom when he was 15. And, it, and I've always loved it. And it starts with, I've always loved it, particularly because it starts with Hannah, my daughter. And it's her um, answer phone from her mobile phone message, oh, which right. he recorded. Which she still she still has the same answer phone to from when she was a little girl, and that was used in a song. And I said, "Oh, look, my son!" And too, I played it, and I said, "It's good, isn't it?" And she went, "It's really lovely. It's a great song." Did he do everything? And I said, "Yeah, he's, he's a talented lad." She went, "Oh, she can I play my daughter's song?" And I went, "Yeah, all right." And so she <laughs> <laughs> she put on bloody Lily Allen. I went, like, oh, "Is this your daughter?" Yes. <laughs> but, yes. I went, "Oh, okay, you win." <laughs> it wasn't a competition. She just it was something. She was sort of proud of it, as I was. Your son does make music, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. How can people find him? That might be a nice thing. Oh right, yeah, good. Um, well, he's, he's got um, two sources. One, one is um, he's known as uh, uh, 
Monkey Harrison, but his name's John Fenton. Yeah. Really, John Fenton or Fenton Stevens. Look him up. He's, yeah. You'll find him doing everything. But he's, got, he's got a company called um, Pass the Peas Music. That's where he writes his music. For, but he's also got a number of different... As you people do, he's got a number of different names. Yeah. He's got, he writes fantastic fantastic sampling and beats and it, it, it's got this, this look up this song called Universe it's absolutely brilliant it's got samples of uh, of Sledgehammer on it Peter uh, Gabriel Peter Gabriel it just works brilliantly it's a fantastic song if you want to have a really good dance this is the song well that's great it's been an absolute pleasure getting better acquainted with it's you it's really nice to see you and yeah and, and seeing you again after all this yeah, time yeah it's weird it's, isn't it I know I don't look a day older you, you, well, you shut your face you, you don't shut your I mean face. I don't know what that means maybe you looked very old then <laughs> <laughs> anyway the last thing I ask people to do is just to say goodbye to the audience yes goodbye and uh, thank you for listening mum <laughs> bye bye you can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted